the National Archives podcast series, The Great Archive Debate, A View from York, presented by Sarah Rees-Jones and Victoria Hoyle. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting us. Um, Victoria and I are actually going to tell you, give you a very rapid overview of a lot of things that are happening in York in the hope that some of them will spark some of your interest. And if you want us to go into more depth, then please ask us some questions afterwards. As it's already been explained, my principal academic background is as a scholarly medievalist, and I've just published this, this big book that no one will ever read, <laughs> um, on York between the Norman Conquest and the Black Death. So in my youth and in my training, my experience in archivists was very much as one of your customers uh, using records to produce uh, academic monographs. But a year ago, I was appointed to take over the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Past in, in York. Um, I took over from my predecessor, Helen Weinstein, who very much came from a media background, from production in the BBC. Um, And in taking over the Institute, obviously I want to give it a new spin and a new direction. Uh, And we're identifying some core areas of research that we can support within the university. Uh, Three areas, one of which is archives and uh, public participation in the use of archives. And we think there's a lot more work that academic historians can do to work with archivists and others in making archives more accessible to the general public. So we're going to do that through research projects and programmes, some of which I'll mention in brief uh, in a few minutes' time, but also very much through the new MA in public history, which started last year. A particular feature of which, a new feature for York, is that the students on that MA do an assessed placement in uh, industry. It could be a museum, historic site a media company, an archive. We have 23 students doing placements this year, assessed placements, mostly with regional institutions, but some with London-based institutions, including one with the National Archives. They scope research for museums, but a lot of the work they're doing is about public engagement, and we imagine them going out into careers as interpreters, education officers, researchers, public-facing researchers, uh, in relation to... Uh, the past and its use by the public. So, as I said, in terms of our archive strand, we are certainly wanting to support public engagement, but we're also really wanting to think through, and Victoria will say more about this, how to really develop sustainable public participation, the magic bullet that everybody's wanting to find. So we're starting from the premise that all of us know very well, which is that historical records, whether digitised or not, are hard to access, <coughs> difficult to search, understand, transcribe and organise. How can we help mitigate and alleviate some of those issues? And that, therefore, in order to address that, we need to create better environments, both offline and online, in which archives can be creatively enjoyed by the widest possible cross-section of the public. In York particularly, but I think it's also a wider concern, we're also very aware of how the heritage debate has developed since the 1980s and 1990s and very concerned to both put history and archives back at the centre of that debate. There is a tendency, I think, in beautiful historic cities like York for the built environment and material culture and collections to really take centre stage, and that's fantastic. Um, I even noticed that in the AHRC's great heritage debate recently, the focus was largely on the built environment And as archivists and historians, we can do a lot to support that. But in doing so, I don't want us to lose sight of 
the, the greater richness of archives or the greater wealth of history for engaging public interest in thinking about their identity in the present and building towards new futures. Now, obviously, as a teacher, an academic teacher, I've got some pedagogic experience in exposing students to archives and addressing how to get beyond the push factor. Here's some wonderful material that I want you to know about to a kind of pull factor. Why would you, as a 20-year-old undergraduate, want to read this stuff in the first place? But behind that, there is this bigger agenda of reasserting that archives are, have a usefulness in thinking about our past in relation to our future. Uh, it's about contentious and, con- and, and personal histories and not all about things and places. Now, I think that the way to do that is to kind of do a U-turn as an academic historian and to put process before output. When I publish a monograph on medieval York, I'm immensely concerned about what people are going to think about my conclusions and interpretations that I've drawn from the sources, whether or not I've got it right, whether they're going to agree with me, how it fits into different paradigms of interpretation. My own feeling in working with trying to make archives more accessible to the public is that I actually don't care what they do with them. I don't care what kinds of output they use them for. And to a certain extent, I don't, I don't care too much about the quality of their output. I think the first obstacle, in a sense, is to think about how archives, how the general public can engage with archives creatively. Um, because if you use archives, they will have a longer shelf life. They will have a a longer use going on into the future. Um, And therefore I found one of the useful ways in which we can do that in in York is to some extent by uh, subliminating our kind of academic specialisms of uh, our understanding of what records might be used for and concentrating on our knowledge of what records are, uh, where they are, what their contents are in order to bring them to public attention. So we've had a huge number of projects with a lot of people who are not historians or archivists, with educationalists, with creative writers, artists, health professionals, bioarchaeologists, computer scientists, and probably more that I have forgotten. Some of which have been large funded projects with kind of mega pounds associated with them and and, and outputs, you know, externally refereed outputs. A lot of which, at the moment, if I'm honest, are much smaller and more experimental than that and revolve particularly around our fantastic students who all come to York with really good degrees, generally in history, and then can apply their expert knowledge in quite small-scale case studies, if you like, uh, developing new ways of thinking about the past and using archival material in doing that. And I'm actually a great advocate of that kind of pragmatic, piecemeal approach, especially one year into a new job and really a new area. Uh, Public history is really not taught that much uh, in British universities. There are not that many places that do it. And out of those small things, really great opportunities can grow. I can already see some great opportunities growing. And the other thing that comes out of that engagement by these amazing students who are going to have great careers in the future, I hope, as interpreters of the past with the public, is that they themselves, through their individual projects, are bridging the gap between archives and other you know, custodians, gatekeepers of the past, if you like, between museum collections, historic sites or whatever. And we've got a number of examples now in which it's the student who has forged the link between, say, the York Museum's Trust and Castle Howard, or the York Museum's Trust and the Borthwick Institute for Archives, in showing where there's new potential to bring collections and projects uh, involving the public together. And you can get a flavour for those projects. We're only in our second year uh, by looking at the IPUP uh, blogs.
And one example of that that's come to light very recently is, not surprisingly, a lot of the student placements last year and this year are around the First World War. That won't amaze you, I'm sure, in the National Archives. (coughs) And just this year, uh, through the work that they've done and also through the work that the Yorkshire Country House Partnership has done, one of our partners in the region, they're beginning to uncover the amazing wealth of archives, which are still the private possessions of the owners of, of great houses in Yorkshire. This is the tip of a, the tiny tip of a tip of an iceberg of some of the stuff relating to the First World War that has been discovered in Castle Howard, for example, including all sorts of records um, about exemption from service, which is a category of record which I understand has been destroyed in public archives, was destroyed at the end of the First World War, but survives in some quantity in, in these archives. So you can see how this is now generating all sorts of ideas about relationships between institutions across the region in commemorating the First World War and, 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 and public, involving the public in those activities over the next four years or so. So that's, in, in, in basis, in principle, what IPUP is about. It's, it's very wide-ranging, it's very open to new approaches, it's very much about putting the students first for all sorts of reasons. Uh, It's not only about digital engagement, it's also about non-digital activities. But I will be best known in TNA, I think, for the project Chartex, which is just finishing, which was very much uh, developed with Sean Cunningham as a digital project uh, with the National Archives, and we're just writing our final report. So I just thought while I was here, I should give you a glimpse of what we've managed to achieve. And this is another benefit, I think, that can come out of working with the academic sector, is that we have access to scientists who can do things that we would never dream were possible. I always thought the Chartex project was like trying to walk on the moon. Um, When I came in November and reported our progress or October, I thought we were kind of in the module, orbiting the lunar surface, but I do think we've now taken our first steps (laughs) for mankind. So... Uh, the Chartex project was funded under the Digging Into Data Challenge. It was a big international team from people who'd never worked in digital humanities before across lots of different specialisms in lots of different universities. We had a meeting, uh, Sean took the photograph, at TNA a couple of years ago, and there am I demonstrating wonderful archive technique. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> The point of the project was to use some of my expertise as a medievalist and other medievalists like me in the project by focusing on one particular class of record, which were medieval charters, which I'm sure you know are title deeds for transactions of property. Rather than being interested in their content uh, as legal records, we were interested in what they told us about the relationship between people and places in the past. Entities that may be people, places or dates and how when you study the relationship between them, you can begin to build up rich social histories of the development of specific communities in records that are often not dated and certainly don't have street names or geo-reference points associated with them. So the challenge was whether we could train the computer to extract this kind of information automatically without any human intervention from these records and reconstruct the relationships, both in individual records and between lots and lots of different records, and then create some kind of conceptual plan of the logical relationships that were being described. Now, the whole point of this is to open up the content of hard-to-understand records so that instead of just doing simple word searches from manually annotated records, the computer can go and read digital records for you and generate a story out of them without any kind of manual annotation. 
So the word natural language processing was involved to try and identify and extract those entities about places, people and transactions from individual records, and then data mining to map the relation and measure the relationships between them. And then a third slightly separate element was a virtual workbench for the user so that they could check the automatic results that were sent back to them and manipulate and change them if they wanted to. The historians worked very hard, first of all, to establish what the markup schema should be, what were the entities they wanted to identify and the relationships between them. And we annotated uh, some sample training sets to give the machine uh, an idea of what it was we wanted to achieve. Natural language processing, how did we do? And you can see that by last November, although it wasn't perfect, the NLP was actually getting, getting somewhere and we were getting sensible results from the, the machine itself simply reading these records. Data mining, just to give you an image really of how the data mining could extract and map relationships, how many relationships there are even within a single charter, a single record. Uh, then going on to try and identify different instances of the same person in different records and using probabilistic reasoning to judge whether the two Thomases in the two different records were likely to be the same Thomas or not, and then linking all those Thomases across large numbers of records and other uh, entities and relationships as well. And the last I heard in November, December last year, the data mining was not only doing reasonably good matching of people, it could be better, but it was reasonable, but they were also organising all the charters spatially, so that they were able to reconstruct a sequence of property ownership from one corner of Petergate to the next corner of Petergate in a, in a schematic form. Finally, the virtual uh, workbench, which I could easily spend 30 minutes explaining, searching for entities across numbers of collections where you can work with an individual record, where you can put together, you can verify the relationships the computer has presented for you and tweak them, add new ones, delete ones that you don't like. You can open and close any of these windows to enlarge them as you're using it as well. This virtual workbench was evaluated um, in the States with graduate students at Columbia, um, and it's done pretty well in the evaluations. The only thing that's not working so well at the moment are the visualisations, these sort of concentric circles, which probably need to be changed for something that's more intuitive and works better. But this was done by my colleagues in York in human-computer interaction who basically did an ethnography of professional and, and amateur historians to see how they worked with records and built the system around this. So what are the next steps for Chartex? Perhaps the most important thing to say is that National Archives have just won... They've snaffled the AI people from Brighton and Leiden and have just won funding for a big AHRC-funded project with them to work on your data. Didn't include York, but never mind. <laughs> it's great that the technology is going forward. Um, and in York, we've got a little bit of funding to scope how to develop these approaches with our big uh, university archive, the Borthwick Institute for Archives, both as training resources for the next generation of professionals but also perhaps beyond that uh, as, as some kind of service for the public. So I hope I've given Victoria enough time to talk. Um, I'll hand over to Victoria now. Hello, good afternoon. Um, I am Victoria Hoyle, and I'm both an archivist and a first-year PhD student 
um, as has been said. I work part-time for City of York Council in the role of City Archivist, uh, where I'm co-responsible for the management of the archive service and the delivery of our major funded projects. I'm going to come back to those projects in a moment. In the other half of my life, I'm working on this long-winded AHRC-funded research project called Within the Walls, Heritage Values and the Historic City. It is, as been said, a collaboration between the University of York and the City Council in support of three interrelated PhD scholarships designed to interrogate the value and relevance of heritage to public audiences and consider how these findings inform approaches to engagement and participation with broad public audiences. My fellow students are working on built and archaeological heritage, um, while my strand relates specifically to archives. My research will investigate the applicability of national, international, expert or professional uh, concepts of what is valuable in archives and archival work, in light of alternate and often competing views and values of the individuals or communities who are engaging with the archives that we are responsible for on their own terms. York is a particularly good laboratory for this kind of research because although it has an incredibly rich and diverse archives economy, levels of engagement with archives are relatively low. The City Archive, where I work, has traditionally served a very narrow demographic of long-term archive users. In a recent survey of our residents, uh, only 18% of users thought, of people um, thought they knew where to find us, and half of those turned out to be wrong. <laughs> um, so that's, <laughs> that's 7% of 1,000 people, or 947 people, um, who, under, who knew where the archives could be found in the city. Uh, the answer is near the art gallery. The archives collections accrued over its 60 year history have similarly limit, have been similarly limited in coverage to represent the interests of this relatively small audience. Um, and at the same time, we know there is an enormous interest from the public in the history of the city, from residents and visitors alike. So in the same survey, when asked the question, is York's history important to the city's identity? 76% of respondents felt that was the case. Um, while 63% were interested in the history of York and 62%, hearteningly, felt that it was important that the archives were open to the public. 4% felt that the city archives were easy to use. That probably is somewhat representative of the fact that very few of these people had ever used them. There are over 30 local or family history, community archaeology, community history groups in the small local authority area of York, and several grassroots <coughs> blogs and Facebook pages that are devoted to sharing memories and photographs. We've got Memories of York Facebook page, which has over 10,000 members. The York Stories blog, which is an incredibly um, well-subscribed blog, um, with far more subscribers than we could ever hope for on our blog. There is a, a Timeline York Plus, which is a coordinated group of all the local and family history societies, and also a group, York's Alternative History, who are interested in reappraising and re-evaluating um, narratives around York's past. The activity is happening spontaneously um, and informally online. It's happening away from our reading room, it's away from our institutional website, and there's very few linkages with our own social media feeds. So there's very little contact between these groups and the archives. They don't need our prompting, and our standard programme of engagement activities, talks and walks and open days, don't seem relevant to them. Um, similarly, what we value about the archives as archivists 
is apparently not the same as the things that they value. And that's one of the things that I would like to explore during the course of my research. I recently spoke to one of the founding members of the Memories of York Facebook group, which, as I said, has over 10,000 members, and discovered that he had never visited an archive or even considered visiting one. This is despite the fact that he devotes significant amounts of his leisure time to exploring York's past and discussing it with others. When I asked him why, he felt that he didn't need to. He said uh, he sourced his photographs, documents and reminiscences from his friends and his neighbours and his online contacts. He preferred his history living and breathing in the hands of people who he knew and felt that he could trust. It seemed that he felt that archives didn't value the livingness of their collections. Um, he said to me that he thought it would be boring, formal stuff. And then that we formalised it some more by cataloguing it and putting it in cases and having what he felt to be restrictive access conditions. Um, he's obviously missing out, I believe, uh, with that view, but it also struck me that the archives are missing out too because his collections, his friends and his reminiscences and his neighbours and his online contacts are closed off to us as much as ours are to him. To some extent, we're living in parallel worlds. So my key motivation for pursuing my PhD research is to understand this disconnect of values and find out ways to bridge it. How do archives build mutually supporting relationships with these potential audiences and share their expertise and ideas to make historical records more accessible and usable? My aim is to explore the relationship or absences of relationships that already exist between archive repositories and public audiences and consider if and how we might adapt or even completely revolutionise our professional approach to become less expert and more community-driven. One of the key sources for my research will be the ongoing development work at York's City Archive, um, because I'll be in the interesting position of delivering change two days a week, a city archivist, and studying it, the other three. Um, which is, I'm going to use a form of participation action research to try and square the ethical circle on that one. I joined the City Archives team in 2010, at which point I was a newly qualified professional, and I quite unwittingly walked in on an ambitious plan to completely reinvent the archive service at York. It was a plan that was first envisioned by my now job share partner Richard Taylor, who in 2008 was seconded from his role at the National Railway Museum to write a report on the future of the archives at a time when it looked bleak and uncertain. Um, it was squeezed into a corner of the art gallery, literally, um, as once described by a member of art gallery staff, round by the bins, um, in very poor conditions. This was our search room, shared by archivists around the side and our public users in the centre. Our strong rooms were converted art galleries, so had beautiful big windows to let in lots of light for looking at art, not great uh, for storing archives, and we also had uh, quite significant problems with damp um, in areas of the building. We took a relatively creative approach to storage. This is a mezzanine level built uh, by volunteers in our archive strong room three, uh, according to no health and safety standards anyone has ever heard of. So when I came and arrived in 2010, this was the picture that presented itself, and I'm sure that for many people in the room, this is not surprising, unfortunately, that everyone has seen archives 
in these kinds of situations. And I don't want to suggest for a minute that York is unique in that way. Intellectual control of the collections was patchy, as I'm sure you can tell from simply looking at them. And uh, the archivist of 40 years, uh, who had an incredible body of personal knowledge about the collections, had just retired in 2008, taking all of that knowledge with her. Over 10 years, the plan was to take this jumble um, and turn it into, and I quote, this is from our vision, an archive for all the people of York, representing all the people of York. That's quite an ambitious statement to make when you have more volunteers than you have archive visitors. The York Gateway to History project, uh, which just received £1.6 million from the Heritage Lottery Fund in 2012, is the key to unlock this change, um, we believe. Uh, There is a capital element to it, so we have moved from that round-by-the-bins location, salubrious as it was, and a great favourite with York's homeless community. We are, we are in the process now of building a new repository, um, which is going to be an extension to the city's main library. Um, the extension is this interesting gold box sat at the back of the building. This is a grade two listed building, so there are limits to what we can do with it. It will be a PD5454 compliance store, and there will be a suite of new public spaces for people to engage with archives. But by far the most important aspect of the Gateway Project is the activity plan, which is to widen audiences and the philosophy that underpins that. Gateway is, I suppose, what we could call a participatory archives project, um, inspired to some extent by the principles of the participatory museum movement, which some of you may have heard of and read articles about. We tend to think of our audiences as end users, uh, the ultimate beneficiaries of what we do, from day-to-day public access to large-scale digitisation projects. They are on the receiving end um, of what our professional activities have made possible. We design and build impressive new archive buildings, um, and people come and visit them. We create catalogues and finding aids so that researchers can come and use them. But during several years of consultation and talking to public audiences in preparation for the Gateway bid, we realised that the public do not think of themselves as end users, or not always. They weren't just interested in engaging with the finished article. They didn't just want to talk to us about what was going to be available to them at the end of the process. They wanted in from the beginning a design and concept stage. They didn't want us to, they didn't just want to tell us what they wanted. They wanted to work with us to make it possible. And if we were to truly represent these people and become a service for everybody, we felt that we would have to challenge our former supply chain sense of what we do. We would have to build co-creation principles into our work and mediate many different ideas of what was archivally valuable and useful. So the first activity in our plan was to form an advisory group to represent communities from across the city. And we already know that there are all those local and family history groups out there who are engaging, so they are a first sort of line of engagement for us because they're easy to contact but beyond that we made a great effort to involve representatives from many of York's diverse groups and agencies right from the very beginning. This advisory group it acts as a steer for any ongoing development and it will last beyond the life of the Gateway Project which is running from uh, 2013 to 2016. 
Our second action was to recruit a community collections archivist whose job is not to develop the archive's holdings necessarily, but to support local people to create, preserve and use their archives in ways that they decide. She will be led by what the group values, by what the community values, rather than by her professional definition of value. So there are lots of questions about value there and what we define as valuable insofar as her professional ethics allow, and that's going to be an interesting process to see where we can draw the line between acting as the community wishes to and acting as our professional ethics demand that we do. So far she's working with a local community railway nursery. When she first told me this, I had no idea what that was. This is apparently the kind of nursery that grows plants rather than looks after children, um, and is one of the only surviving community railway nurseries which was originally created um, to support railway workers um, during the Second World War, to survive in Britain. Uh, They have their own archive, and they consider their archive to be much broader than we would define an archive. As I'm sure you've all come across before, uh, people's concept of what an archive is is very fluid. But they would like to retain custody of it on their own site, and they have now uh, started to build their own repository at the nursery to hold that archive. She's also working with a primary school who consider their building, their alumni, all their students and their teachers as much a part of their archive and as important to preserve as the paper records which they're currently keeping in their basement. And part of my PhD research will be investigating both sides of these new engagement relationships and considering how far our understanding of what archives are can fit with this new way of engaging with people. And it will be interesting to see what we will compromise and what is non-negotiable and how far those international and national strategic documents that I showed at the, front, at the beginning align with the community's values. I'd just like to briefly mention another relevant project um, and also an upcoming change. Between 2012 and 2014, we've been working on the National Cataloguing Grant Scheme funded City Making History project. This aimed to recatalogue 800 years and 210 cubic metres of the civic archives in 15 months with one professional archivist and a handful of volunteers, which sounds completely beyond the realm of possibility even to me. And this, that constitutes about 60% of our total archive holdings. We took the radical decision to apply MPLP, or More Product, Less Process, to one of the richest medieval and early modern city archives in the UK. As some of you will know, this was an approach that was originally designed to tackle backlogs of 20th century records in the US. Uh, We decided upon it because we faced a very specific set of challenges. We had hundreds of item level lists, but no catalogue structure or hierarchy, and a poor understanding of relationships between series, although series had arrived with us relatively intact. We had no digital catalogue, but an excellent reputation as a specialist and medieval archive, with lots of collections knowledge in people's heads and not on paper. We'd formerly been using our accession numbers as catalogue references, meaning that for some archives we had 13 or 14 different referencing systems. We had no cataloguing standards, workflows or priorities, and this archive was in poor or no packaging. So we had to design a solution to that problem. And we had to do it quickly because we knew that we would be relaunching a new public service when we reopened following the Gateway to History project at the end of this year. So in the end, MPLP, we felt, gave us the tools to fix it quickly. 
When I talk about MPLP, though, I don't wish to give the impression that we were stringently sticking to the process and principles which were originally designed. We took it more as a toolkit of ideas that we could take from. And in the end, what we ended up with is a catalogue that hybridises a functional arrangement at fonds and sub-fonds level with an Australian series system because of this problem that we had with having intact series but no sense of their provenance, um, and linked authority files so that we could retain um, a sense of the original order of the collection while still using a functional arrangement at the higher levels of the hierarchy. It challenged all our assumptions of what a catalogue can look like, although if you look at it on CALM it looks relatively traditional, it's ISAG compliant, um, beneath it the principles of it are quite different to anything that I have worked with in the past. While planning for this project was firmly grounded in archival theory, we designed participation and co-creation into this project as well from the beginning. We had a, series, a, a group of volunteers who we trained in MPLP processing, so for packaging um, and relabeling. And as the volunteers repackaged a series of records, the project archivist catalogued them. And that happened simultaneously in the same room. The cataloguing came out of discussions with the volunteers about the records they were handling. So as they packaged them, they were also examining them. They were using them. They were pointing out and talking about the things that interested them or which they found useful. Some of these people were archive users, some of them were students, and some of them were interested parties who had never been in an archive as a traditional researcher. As they were talking, the archivist integrated what they were saying into the catalogue records so that each description was a collaboration between the archivist and the volunteers. This proved to be quite an efficient way of working because it meant that a series was catalogued and processed simultaneously and ready to be used. It also gave what we believe to be more detailed and nuanced descriptions because it started to cut through the thicket of archival standard description fields to the documents themselves. So we were kind of seeing people engaging with them live and capturing that engagement as it happened. And we were discovering themes in our own records that we had not previously recognised and gave, giving a much more kind of dynamic item-level description or series-level description. It was also far more engaging for the volunteers because they really felt that they were part of the process rather than being at the end of it. It definitely highlighted for me potential gaps between what archive, archivists see when they look at records and what the public may see. So this is what MPLP meant to us. It, mean, it meant an accessible, an accessible backlog that keeps growing is not acceptable. You can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, which is what we had been trying to do over many, many decades, is item-level description. Users need to dictate our outcomes. Pragmatism is better than perfection. We don't arbitrarily treat everything in the same way, and this is certainly true of the Civic Archive because it's made up of a vast variety of material in a vast variety of forms and across 800 years' worth of history. Professional staff time should be spent on activities that require professional judgment. Everything else can be delegated. And archival principles are not the same as practices. So this is, again, about trying to balance the difference between what, we, what are our principles, what are the things that we will go to the trenches for, and what are the things that are just practices, they are just traditions which we have maintained because they suit us.
Finally, I want to talk about a big change for us which is coming. I'll do it quite quickly. In April this year, so in two months' time, we will take our determination to be an archive for and by the community to the next level when we spin out of City of York Council with the library service and become an industrial and provident society with charitable status. Although the archives themselves will continue to be owned by the council, their management and administration will be the responsibility of a new organisation, Explore York Libraries and Archives, or ILA, which I think is quite nice. Um, ILA will be governed by a board of directors, library and archive staff, and the public. The public will be two-thirds of the decision-making body of the organisation. Anyone can become a member. You don't have to be a York resident. You can be anybody who is interested in engaging with the archives at York and the library service at York. And those members will influence future direction by joining advisory groups, such as the one we already have for the archives, um, voting for directors and attending our public meetings. We will be maintaining our strong links with the council because the majority of our funding will continue to come from them. But... Uh, we will also be looking to build partnerships and networks in our own right on a more equal basis with the community groups and other heritage organisations and extending the work that we do in partnership with the universities in the city. We're going to have a five-year contract to deliver the archive service with a fixed and guaranteed budget, which we could never have hoped for inside the council with the current regime of cuts. Going out of the council in this budget round means that we retain somewhere in the region of £250,000 that we would have lost in subsequent year. So we feel that we are in a relatively strong position in that regard, that we have five years of guaranteed funding in a climate where no funding is guaranteed. So each of these projects and changes is exciting and essential to the long-term survival of the archive in its own right, I would argue, but none goes to the heart of our ambitions for the archives at York or our motives. In thinking about how to reinvent the service from the ground up, we started to question the fundamentals of what we do and to question our values. This led us to ask what our users value and what other publics value and to try and find out which in turn led to gateway to history and city-making history and to the research partnership with the university for the Within the Walls project. For me, it's going to be an interesting few years. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 3rd of February 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.